Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis. You'll find the multiple readings from Genesis on page 8 in your bulletin. We are looking this morning at the covenant of grace as it was revealed in greater glory to Abraham, our spiritual father. And that covenant was revealed to Abraham over a period of about 25 years. And so there are different sections of Genesis that tell the different portions of that story of the covenant with Abraham. And so we're going to begin with Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. This is God's word. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I'll make of you a great nation, and I'll bless you and make your name great, so that you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then from chapter 15, verses 7 through 11. And God said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he, Abraham, said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And then chapter 15, verses 17 and 18. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. And then again from chapter 17, verses 9 and 10. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout your, their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. I want you to think for just a moment about how important promises are to your life. Every day, whether you think about it or not, you live and rely upon the basis of promises that have been made to you. Some of those promises are contractual type promises. We work for our employers based on the promise they have made to pay us wages that we've agreed upon. We put our money in the bank based on the promise that they're going to protect that money and make it available to us when we need it. We take our car to the mechanic based on the promise that he will fix our brakes to make sure that they are safe to drive down the road. And we turn on our lights and our faucets based on the promise that our utility companies will keep the energy and the water flowing. Some of the promises that we live by and rely upon are made based on solemn vows or oaths. We trust that our spouses will be faithful to their marriage vows. 
We trust that our doctors will be faithful to the Hippocratic Oath or whatever form of that they still take these days. We trust that policemen will be faithful to their vow to uphold the laws. We rely on our family to keep their promises. We rely on companies that we contract with to keep their promises. We rely upon institutions to keep their promises. We rely upon the civil servants to keep their promises and their oaths. And when you think about it, as you rely on those promises every moment of every day, you realize that some of your greatest frustrations and pains in life are due to the broken promises in your life by spouses, family members, companies, institutions, civil servants. And when you think of how Satan works, some of his greatest weapons against us are things that promise life to us but actually bring death to us. False religions, greed, fame, drugs, immoral sex, promise life and pleasure, but bring death. They're broken promises. As someone once said, a promise is only as good as the one who makes it. We're talking about God's promise in this series of sermons about the covenant of grace. We're flying over scripture at the 20,000 foot view, the 20,000 foot level, in order to get a sense of the overall narrative, the overall structure that ties all of God's word together, the key to all the puzzle pieces of all the different types of scripture that pulls it all together into one story, one promise, what we call the covenant of grace. Now, just as a reminder, when we talk about a covenant, we don't often use the word covenant in modern language. So just as we define it in human terms, in secular terms, a covenant is a contract between two parties that forms some kind of a relationship between the two parties that implies certain obligations and certain accountability. In biblical terms, we see that it contains that, it begins with that idea in the secular realm, but it defines it more precisely, a covenant in biblical terms is a promise from God to sinners like you and me. And that promise that God makes to sinners by grace creates what we've called a bond in blood or a relationship in blood that God sovereignly administers. And so just think about it. If your life ultimately is based on God's promise, and it is true that a promise is only as good as the one who makes it, then you have something very, very precious if you've been given the promise of God. It is something you can base your life upon. It is something you can base all your hope upon for the future. We saw in the beginning of this series that the seed of God's covenant promise What we call the covenant of grace started at the moment when mankind rebelled against God. When Adam and Eve chose not to trust in God, not to believe in God's promises, but to believe in the promises of Satan and took sides with Satan against God, God showed grace. He had every right to cast Adam and Eve into eternal destruction, but he showed grace to them and he formed a relationship with them and he made promises. The two 
primary promises of the covenant of grace as given to Adam and Eve was that, first of all, he was going to put enmity between them and their believing descendants and Satan and those who would follow the ways of Satan. They had chosen Satan's side, but God showed grace by putting enmity between those who would believe God's promise and those who would follow after Satan. The second promise given to Adam and Eve is that one day the seed of the woman, an individual coming from the line of promise, coming from the line of those who believe, the descendants of Adam and Eve, that one of the seed of the woman would come one day and decisively crush the head of the serpent, defeat Satan and his kingdom and all that is wicked and sinful and in rebellion to God. Later, we saw last week that wickedness came and took over the world. The world became a very, very dark place. And God chose to destroy the creation, the people that he had made, the entire world through a flood. But he called out Noah by grace. He chose Noah, he called him to himself, and said that he would deliver Noah and his family through this flood. And after the flood, God gave humanity a restart with, Adam and, with, with Noah and his family. And he made additional promises added to the covenant of grace. We ha- he gave Noah what we call the covenant of preservation. He promised, first of all, that he would give the power of the sword to restrain wickedness and provide order so that the purposes of his plan of redemption, his covenant of grace, could go forward throughout the future generations of mankind. And secondly, he promised that he would not destroy the earth again until the final judgment came. And he gave a sign to reassure his people. Every time people who believed his promise saw the rainbow in the clouds is a reminder of his grace in the face of the judgment that we all deserve. Well, now we come to Genesis 12. And in Genesis 12, we begin over the next several chapters to see a huge development in the history of God's people and in the history of the covenant of grace. Because here we see the establishment of what we call the covenant community, the people of God that are created by God's promise. In their book, Sacred Bond, which is a book about covenant theology, Michael Brown and Zach Keel no relation, he spells his name the wrong way. Um, <laughs> they make an interesting comparison in the beginning of that book. They, they say that just like in the Lord of the Rings movies, you remember the Fellowship of the Ring, the very first Lord of the Ring movie, if you've seen that. If you haven't seen it, go see it. Um, that they, they actually record, they, they give a prologue which gives a summary, a very quick summary of thousands of years of the history of Middle Earth, of the battles and rise and fall of powers in the Middle Earth, as all as a background so you understand when the story slows down suddenly and you get a very detailed narrative of the life of Frodo, the main character, you see how Frodo fits in to the big picture and the big plan of history that, that precedes him. And interestingly, these authors in this book, they make the point that really, isn't that what scripture does? The first 11 chapters of scripture is like that historical prologue. Things you need to know about the ancient world in order to understand 
everything that comes after it. And it's very quick. Major themes, don't dwell on any of them very long, but you need to understand this because when we come to Abraham and his family, you need to understand how they fit in the context of what God is doing here. And so, with Abraham, God chooses not just an individual, but a family. We saw this with Noah, but this gets expanded upon in the promises that are given to Abraham. With Abraham and his family, we begin to see an identifiable community which would be formed by those who trust in the covenant promises that God gives. In Abraham and his family, we see the beginnings of the nation of Israel, but we also see the beginnings of the new covenant church. And it's very important that we understand the promises that are given to Abraham that form the covenant community in order to understand what the church is, why we're here, and where we're going. And so, let's begin with the characteristics we learn about God's people, his covenant people, based on the covenant that God makes with Abraham. Now again, we talk about different covenants. The covenant with Adam, the covenant with Noah, the covenant with Abraham. These are all just installments of the one covenant. One covenant of grace. And every time you have a figure like Noah or Abraham or David or Jesus come onto the scene, God is expanding the prom- and, and giving much more depth to the, the covenant promises. And so what we learn about God's covenant people, first of all, is that we are a called out people. This is important understanding who you are as the church of Jesus Christ. You are a called out people. In verse 1 of chapter 12, God invades Abram's life. I want you to notice that. We don't get some history of Abraham in some kind of spiritual search. Abraham is just minding his own business, living his life in a pagan country, in the family of an idolater, we find out later in Scripture. And God invades his life speaks to him. That's how God, notice, you're going to see that every time. God starts a relationship with lost sinners by speaking to them. And so he speaks to Abraham, and he says, of course, he's called Abram at this point because his name hasn't been changed to reflect the fulfillment of his promises. He speaks to Abram, and he says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house. Here's one place where I like the King James Version better than the ESV because it's much more dramatic. The King James Version says, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred. Abraham was not seeking God. God sought Abraham in a position of being totally lost. And he says, get out of the world. Get out of your idolatry. Get out of your paganism. Come, follow me. It's the same kind of call that Jesus would give to his disciples. God says, I will. There's nothing in the promises given to Abraham where God says to Abraham, here's what you're going to do. Here's your side of the negotiation. You notice what he says there at the beginning of chapter 12. I will, I will, I will. A covenant is God's promises sovereignly administered. God takes the initiative. They're unilateral promises. It's interesting, the the New Testament word, you go to the New Testament, New Testament Greek, the New Testament word for the church is ecclesia. It's the word we get ecclesiastical from ecclesia. You know what that word means literally? Called out ones. 
You are the called out ones. When the Bible calls you saints, that doesn't mean you're perfect. It means you are holy ones, set apart from the world to serve God. You are called out ones. And that's really important for you as the people of God. Just as Abraham's family, Abraham and his family were called out, we are in that same line of promise of the covenant of grace, and we are called out of the world to follow the Lord. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples? He said, a disciple must hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, in order to follow him. Now, it obviously doesn't mean some kind of emotional antagonism or, or, or hatred in that sense. He means you need to leave whatever holds you back from me. You need to set aside. You need to come out of the world that's in opposition to me, that's in rebellion to me, and come and follow me. It's interesting. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul applies to the church... The same words that Isaiah applied to Israel in the Old Testament. Again, this is Paul writing this, but he's quoting the book of Isaiah. So he's saying to the church the same words that Isaiah said to Israel. He says, he's quoting God. God says, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. That should be sounding very familiar to you by now. That's the covenant promise. I will be your God. You shall be my people. Therefore, God says, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. You are God's called out ones. It's very important to your self-identity that you are a called out one. You are set apart unto the Lord. Some of the biggest Mistakes, some of the biggest sins that have been committed in the church is when the church conforms to the world instead of coming out of the world. When the church teaches what the world teaches instead of what the word of God teaches. When the church endorses behaviors and lives out behaviors that the world promotes instead of living by the word of God. We are called out ones. It's important to your identity. You are people of the promise. And God has spoken to you. And by his word, he has transformed you and brought you out of the world. The second characteristic is that God's covenant people would be a great nation. Verse 2 of chapter 12, God says to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation so that you will be a blessing. Later in chapter 22, he says to Abraham, I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and the sand that is on the seashore. I want you to remember that he had said this, that he would make Abram a great nation when Abram was an old man who had a wife who was barren and couldn't bear children. Again, emphasizing God had to sovereignly do this. God had to do a miracle to make his promise happen. And so Abraham, as an individual without any children, later having a miraculous child named Isaac, he, for him to become a nation... It had to be fulfilled, and it was fulfilled in two stages by God's grace. The first stage was the shadow. The second stage was the reality, the fulfillment of the shadow. 
The first stage, the shadow stage, was Israel. Abraham's descendants would become a great nation, as we understand nations. An ethnic nation, the Jewish people forming a nation under King David, King Solomon, and at the height of King David and King Solomon's reign, they were a great nation among the nations. And God's intent was that Israel would represent the kingdom of God. Israel was never equivalent to the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God extends to every corner of the universe. But Israel was intended to be the representative of the kingdom of God. If the nations of the world wanted to know what God, you know, what God's grace could do, what obedience to God could look like, what righteousness could look like, they were to look at Israel. They were to be like a light on a hill to the nations of the world. And God freely accepted any from those nations into Israel if they would believe the promise and submit to God as Lord. God here promises, that in chapter 12, he promises to bless those who bless his people and to curse those who curse his people. In the book of Zechariah, he said to Israel, you are the apple of my eye and whoever touches you touches me. Whoever attacks you attacks me. Many in the nation of Israel believed in the promises given to Adam and to Noah and to Abraham. Many believed those promises, and they were saved based on their faith in the promise of the coming one who would crush the head of the serpent. But there also, as we know from reading the Old Testament, there were many who didn't believe, many who conformed to the way of the world. They were called out by God, but they lived according to the ways of the world. They were still part of the nation, but they did not believe, and they weren't truly saved. Well, then we come to the second fulfillment of this promise to Abraham, which was not the nation of Israel, but the church of Jesus Christ. With the coming of the Messiah, with Christ fulfilling the promises, shedding his blood, purchasing his people with his own blood, he takes the people of God, and he calls them out from the nations. And this nation would not be a political nation, would not be an ethnic nation. It would be characterized as one of the great mysteries revealed in the New Testament is that this great nation in the New Covenant would be international with people from every tribe, every race, every country. It's interesting, Peter in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, I want you to listen carefully to how he describes the church, the people of the promise, the church, the covenant community. I want you to listen carefully to how he describes it because he uses phrases that are used in the Old Testament to describe Israel. He says in verses 9 and 10, you, speaking to the church, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That last sentence, once you were not a people, now you're a people. Once you had not received mercy, now you receive mercy. That's, that's language directly from the prophecy of Hosea. And Hosea was giving that prophecy to Israel Peter applies it to the church. Like Israel in the church, 
you're going to have many people who don't truly believe. They're part of the covenant community, but they don't truly believe the promises. And ultimately, if they don't believe the promises, they are lost. But thankfully, more so in the church than ever was true in the old covenant people of God, you have many, many who do believe and are truly saved. And so both in Old Testament Israel and in the New Covenant Church, these are both the one people of God, and in both, in both eras, you have both the wheat and the tares mixed together. In Romans chapter 11, Paul uses an interesting analogy. He's talking about the covenant people, those who have received these covenant promises through history, including both Jews and Gentiles, as we look at the church. And he compares the, this one covenant community, this one people of God, he compares it to a tree, an olive tree. And he says that in that olive tree, some branches can be broken off and cast away. And other wild branches can be grafted in. I just want you to notice there's only one tree. Some who are a part of the visible church, the visible nation of Israel, some can be cast off, cut off, ultimately. And those who aren't part of the covenant community can be grafted in, but there's only one people of God from beginning to end, all believing in the promises of the covenant of grace. The church is now, today, God's holy nation, but it's an international nation. It exists in every nation. We are called out to enter into the covenant community wherever God has found us. The third characteristic is that God's covenant people would be heirs to the promised land. In verse 1, he, God said, go to the land that I will show you. It's a land that he later described to Moses as a good and broad land flowing with milk and honey. Now, God explains to Abraham, he prophesies in advance, he explains to him that this would happen after 400 years of slavery in Egypt. But God would eventually deliver them into the promised land where they could live out the instructions given to Adam and Noah to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. It would be a beautiful land, a prosperous land. But that fulfillment would come again in two stages, a shadow and then the full reality. The shadow was the land of Canaan. God delayed those 400 years because the sin of the Amorites was not yet full. But when God, the, the cup of God's wrath against their sins was full, he sent the Israelites to drive them out of the land and gave that land as a gift to his people. But as great and wonderful as that land was, it only pointed forward to a greater fulfillment. And Hebrews 11, interestingly, tells us that Abraham's hope was not in the land of Canaan, but in this future land that it was only a shadow of. The future land that the land of Canaan pointed to, a much greater promised land. In Hebrews 11, it says, By faith, Abraham went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. They desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Abraham's hope was not ultimately in this fallen world, but it was in the world to come. 
And that's the hope that is still before the new covenant people of God now that Christ has come, the new heavens and the new earth. The seed of the woman, the offspring of Abraham, the Messiah, Jesus has come. He has shed his blood. Our sins have been covered and atoned for. He has given us the gift of his righteousness. And now we have the hope of a future heavens and earth that has been purged from sin where there's no more suffering, no more evil, no more darkness. And that's what Romans 8 is all about. Romans 8, Paul says, We are the children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs of, with Christ. Heirs of what? Eternal salvation, yes. But also he goes on to say, a new heavens and a new earth. He says that the current creation groans as it waits for Christ to come back. It says that the current creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Your hope is not in this world. Your hope is not in your bank account. Your hope is not in your career. Your hope is not in your family. Your hope is in the return of Christ and the fulfillment of all of the covenant promises when he makes everything in the entire universe perfect and makes you suitable to dwell there by grace. The fourth characteristic of God's covenant people here in the covenant with Abraham is that God's covenant people would be a blessing to the world. In 12, chapter 12, verse 3, he says, In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Israel was always called to be a light to the nations. They were to show the world what living under the lordship of God should look like on earth. As we said, more often it conformed to the ways of the world. It did a bad job of being a witness, of being a light to the world. But in the prophecy of Isaiah... He promises a better day to come. He says in chapter 2, verse 2, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between nations, he shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. I want you to notice that all that language is focused in Old Testament nation of Israel language, but it's speaking about the day of the church when all nations are going to flow to the light of God's covenant community. Jesus told his followers in the Sermon on the Mount, as people were coming out of their world to follow him, he said to them, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The church is God's covenant community. It is God's holy nation. It is a light on a hill. We are here to be a blessing to all the lost nations around us. We are here to show what obedience to the Lord looks like, what living by grace looks like. We are here to proclaim the gospel so that people who are lost in their sins and are under God's wrath and condemnation can be at peace with God through the blood of Christ. 
We are the embassy of God's kingdom on earth. We are the ones who have the hope to offer to the world. Many people are looking for any sign of hope in a world that has grown increasingly dark. We have the message, the only message that can give hope. We are God's light on a hill. It's important to your self-identity that you see yourself that way. So having made those promises, the promise that we are a called out people, that we are a holy nation of many nations, we are heirs to a new heavens and a new earth, and we are a channel of God's blessings to all nations. Boy, if you understand the church that way, you'll stop griping about it, won't you? That's who we are. Sure, we, do a, we, we, we have a long way to go to fulfill what we're called to be. But this is who we are by God's grace. And I want to end by talking about how God seals his promises to Abraham for his reassurance and for your reassurance. God is a holy God. He's an omnipotent God. He's an all-knowing God. And when he promises something, it will come to pass. He gives reassurance. He strengthens Abraham's faith. It says in chapter 15, verse 6, that Abraham believed the Lord and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. That's the key to understanding his relationship with God. Paul points it out in Romans chapter 4 that Abraham was saved by faith. God made a promise. Abraham believed it. Abraham was saved by faith alone, not by works. But his faith was so weak at times, wasn't it? pawned off his wife as his sister so that the, the king wouldn't, wouldn't uh, kill him. God promised through you and Sarah, I will send a son. And he slept with his handmaid because he lost faith in God's promise. I say that to encourage you because your faith is going to falter too. But God's promise cannot be taken away. God is so patient with our weak faith. You see there in chapter 15 how Abraham's faith is still a work in progress. In chapter 15, verse 8, he says, Abraham said, Oh Lord God, how am I to know that I will possess it? How audacious. The God who spoke the universe into existence, but how can I be sure that you're going to do what you said you're going to do? But God is so patient. He gives him reassurance. He gives him signs. If you're doubting this morning, if your faith feels weak this morning, take it to God. Don't go to the world for comfort. Don't go for, to the world for answers. Take your doubts, take your weak faith to God. Because James tells us that he is pleased to answer the prayer of faith when you say, Lord, give me more faith. And so then God responds to Abraham's doubts and question by instructing him to take a cow, a heifer, and to take a goat, and to take a ram, and cut them right down the middle, and then take the two sides of each one of those animals and set them opposite each other. Now, that's really weird. And matter of fact, it's without precedent. It's the only place in scripture you see a ceremony like this. And many people will say, what, why is this there? What's the purpose of this? Well, you have to understand that this, was a very, this wasn't an animal sacrifice for worship. Some people misunderstand it for that reason. It wasn't an animal sacrifice for worship. It was a cultural thing. In that ancient culture, that's how two parties, two countries, two tribes would make a covenant, make a treaty. 
they would cut these animals apart, set them opposite each other, and then both parties in the contract, the covenant, both parties would walk between the parts. And by walking between the parts, what they would say would be saying is, if I break this agreement, if I break this covenant, this is what should happen to me. My blood should be shed. I should be cut in half. I should die. If I, it's a blood oath. This is what I deserve if I break the covenant. Now, sometimes a conquering nation, a conquering king, would form a treaty with a lesser king that he had conquered. And so you have the suzerain king and the vassal king. And in that case, only the vassal king, the subservient king, would walk between the animals because why would the conquering king make that kind of promise? But the one who is subservient, he would take the promise. He would walk between the parts. Well, now that you read the story here in Genesis 15, you start to realize what a shocking thing happens here. Because what Abraham saw was a smoking pot and a flaming torch. I don't know if they were together or separate, but a smoking pot and a flaming torch pass through the parts of the animals. Smoking pot was a preview of the pillar of cloud that led the Israelites through the wilderness. The flaming torch was a preview of the, the pillar of fire that led the Israelites through the wilderness. They represent the presence of God. God is the only one who walked between the animal parts. God is the only one who called down a curse of death upon himself if the covenant was broken. It's the gospel. God himself brought the curse of our breaking of the covenant upon himself because it was a sovereign unilateral covenant. He promised, and because he promised, he made sure that it would happen. Even our sin and wickedness could not keep him from showing grace to us, from calling us to be his people, to be his great nation, and a blessing to all nations. Palmer Robertson, in his book, Christ of the Covenants, says this. He says, God the creator binds himself to man, the creature, by a solemn blood oath. The Almighty chooses to commit himself to the fulfillment of the promises spoken to Abraham. By this divine commitment, Abraham's doubts are to be expelled. God has solemnly promised and sealed that promise with a self-maledictory oath, a blood oath. The realization of the divine word is assured. God will fulfill his promise because he's even fulfilled the punishment that breaking the covenant deserves. Christ died for our sins and was raised for our justification. Then one more assurance was given to Abraham for his faith, the sign and seal of the covenant. God says in, in chapter 17 that Abram and his male descendants from birth were to bear the mark of the covenant community, a mark in their flesh, circumcision, which would mark them, set them apart to be God's covenant community. The male children from the point of birth were to wear the mark because they represented their households. The males were the heads of the households. And so it meant that all the households from Abraham's household on through the rest of history were to bear this mark of belonging to the, the covenant community, this visible church of the Old Testament. And the mark of circumcision was a mark of being included. It was not a guarantee of salvation. Many, many who received the mark were not truly saved because they did not truly believe later in life. 
It was not a guarantee of salvation, but it was a sign, and it's important you understand what it was a sign of. It was a sign of what God must do to save a sinner. Because from very early on, from the writings of Moses all the way through the Old Testament, God keeps saying, don't trust in your outward mark of circumcision because what you need is a circumcision of the heart. You can, you can Google that phrase. You can do your Bible search on that phrase, circumcision of the heart. And what you're going to see is that through the entire Old Testament, God is saying, this is what circumcision represents. It's a circumcision of the heart. God must regenerate you. God must give you the gift of faith. God must give you the gift of repentance. God must sanctify you. God must adopt you. It's what God must do to save us. And so everyone in the covenant community bore that mark from the point of birth on. After the seed of the woman, after the Messiah, the Christ comes and sheds his blood to pay for the violations of the covenant, baptism replaces circumcision. It becomes the sign and seal of the covenant of grace. It's a better sign than circumcision because it's bloodless. Blood has already been shed. It's a better sign than circumcision because it's to men and women, boys and girls. It better represents the fullness of the promises of the new covenant as Christ brought everything to fulfillment. And so God is so patient with Abraham's weak faith. He gives him this very memorable ceremony of the split animals and then he gives him a sign to mark him and all of his descendants as belonging to the covenant community, God's promises will be fulfilled. I want to close by reading to you, probably in order to understand the church fully, probably one of the most important passages in the New Testament. If you want to test whether everything I've said about the church, remember, the church is not a replacement for Israel. The church is the fulfillment of what was promised to Israel. It's the fullness of what God intended Israel to be. And I want you to prove this to you from what Paul says in the book of Galatians. Listen carefully to what he says in relation to the promises of Abraham that now belong to you and me as part of the church. He says in Galatians 3 verse 7, Know then that it is those of faith, and he's talking about faith in Jesus, it is those who have faith, of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And then he concludes that great chapter with these words. He says, In Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. You can't understand the church unless you understand the promises given to Abraham. Because we are the heirs of all those promises. And they will be fulfilled. Because the blood of the Son has been shed to make sure that God's promises will come to pass. And we will be perfected in a new heavens and a new earth. We talk a lot about identity these days. That's your identity, church. You're the called out ones. You're the holy nation. You're the blessing to the nations. 
God loves you so much. He's bound himself to you in a marriage-like vow for all eternity. And Peter says, he has granted us these precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. I'll close with these same words. A promise is only as good as the one who makes it. Look to your God. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your promises. Thank you that we don't need to do anything in order to receive them. Thank you that Christ has done all that is necessary. Father, what hope, what security, what peace this gives to us. And Lord, I pray that more and more we would embrace our identity as the church of Jesus Christ, the covenant community, the heirs of the promises to the spiritual forefathers. May we be a blessing to all nations. May we faithfully live out and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the only hope for a lost world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.